in God's providence and the, the place of sin and our sin in God's providence. Um, so how can a holy God use our sin for his glory as part of a divine plan? Is that condoning our sin? So that is the great mystery of God's providence. So the Lord is completely sovereign over all things. Everything that happens in history, there is not one element of it that God does not exercise control over. But the Bible is equally clear that he's not sovereign over it in a way in which he is in any sense responsible for the sin. You know, the sin is ours. It's something that we do freely and willingly. And that is a great and profound mystery. And it's important that we theologically confess the mystery, that we don't try to explain it away, that we don't try to say, well, you know, actually, God's a little bit sovereign um, and we're kind of responsible. What the Bible teaches is that the Lord is 100% sovereign in all things, and yet we are responsible for our actions. Um, So a great mystery, and one that we want to just try to lean on how Christians in the past have attempted to confess it. You know, with, with all these theologic problems, we don't come to them cold with a blank sheet of paper. You know, we're not the first people who have ever had to wrestle with the fact that the scriptures teach that God's sovereignty is absolutely comprehensive, and yet what's that mean for our actions? There are huge resources that we can draw upon in the past as to how Christians have sought to confess what today we might term compatibilism, how divine sovereignty is compatible with, with human freedom, and actually how f- human freedom depends upon divine sovereignty. And then following on from that, um, doesn't this teaching, how do we explain or teach others that this isn't permission to sin or to, or to continue in sin once we come to faith in Jesus? All sorts of problems happen theologically when we take one little aspect of truth and divorce it from all the rest of God's revelation. So if we just latched on to the fact that God's really in control of things and we cut that off from the rest of what's revealed in God's truth, um, we might get to the situation where we'd say, well, actually, well, if God's in control, you know, I might as well just shrug my shoulders and do whatever I want to do. You know, that can excuse it. When we put the doctrine of sovereignty in its proper context within the rest of God's truth, we see that the whole way that it's spoken of and revealed, it would never allow someone to draw that conclusion if we think that Sovereignty is a permission to just, well, you know, go and do whatever we want to do because God's in control of it all. Then we haven't clearly understood what the Bible teaches about sovereignty because when the Bible uses it, it never is designed to just give you the liberty to go and do whatever you want to do. It's always spoken of in a way which would serve to make us responsible, to make us see that our actions really do count. Coming out from a different angle, would Romans 6 be helpful? Okay, go on. I'm, ask, I'm asking the questions. Well, I don't know what you're thinking about. <laughs> well, just that Paul, said, uh, Paul asked a rhetorical question well, in response to justification. Well, then, 
Okay. Shall we go on sinning? Sure. So like that, that would be um, almost like a parallel example, wouldn't it? You know, so th- this is a question of does divine sovereignty mean you can do whatever you wish? Well, similarly, someone could say, doesn't justification by faith alone mean you can just go and do whatever you wish because you're going to be forgiven? And Paul says, no, you know, by no means. If, if you think that, you haven't even begun to understand what I mean by justification by faith alone. We go wrong in all sorts of things doctrinally when we take matters of Christian doctrine and cut them out from their wider context. You've emphasized that sin has lots of consequences, but it's punished and it's exact and fitting. Um, why are Esther and Mordecai not punished in the book of Esther? Well, because of the gospel of God's grace. Um, you know, it comes through so clearly. Um, they're not punished because they've got a savior. Now, they do often have to endure the consequences of sinful and foolish things that they've done in the past. You know, those consequences live on, the results of choices that they made and that their ancestors made before them, they still live with them. But God is a God of incredible grace. To someone proud like Haman, God will bring the pride down. But to those who humble themselves, just like Mordecai did when he heard the decree and he tore his clothes like Esther did when she heard about it and she said, you've got to fast with me when we humble ourselves. God lifts up and gives us what we don't deserve. There's a few questions here about Esther, particularly when she's in chapter 2. She's concealing her identity, that sort of thing. Um, so whilst Esther compromises her faith by concealing her identity as a Jew, how do we know that she willingly went along with the rituals, etc. in chapter 2? Does she have a choice in this? It does not seem clear in the text. Okay, so like it doesn't seem clear in the text. I think part of that's because this is how stories like this are designed to work. Um, You know, a a book like Esther doesn't... (laughs) What time are we here until? Um, a, A book like Esther doesn't... It doesn't yield its secrets easily. You know, it's designed to really make you learn the story and get inside the story and think how one part of the story kind of interacts with another bit. Um, So just because it doesn't say something explicitly doesn't mean that it isn't taught very, very implicitly in it. Some of the reason why I think we can say that Esther was involved in this willingly is just, as I sort of said, by making the contrast between people who find themselves in a situation very, very similar to Esther's. You know, Daniel and his friends, they too are exiled away from the promised land. They find themselves living under a pagan king in a difficult environment where they're forced to to do things that they don't want to do, but both the three friends and Daniel in the pagan empire, they do not willingly go along with it. Like they exercise great wisdom in what they'll do and what they won't do, but they seem to take a really clear stand in a way that I think we see Esther and Mordecai really kind of distancing themselves from. You may feel like you've already answered this question, but it's, it's very similar to that. But um, isn't Esther, wasn't she just being shrewd and wise, perhaps? As Christians today, we might not share straight away to strangers 
that we are Christians until there is an appropriate opening. Esther obtained favor with everyone in the palace. Could this not have been because she continued delighting herself in God? Esther does not seem carried away by the beauty pageant as she wisely asks um, Haggai what he advised. She remains focused. Yeah, so like I guess um, for when Esther, you know, asks the eunuch for that, you know, like I, I think that's her saying, you know, like, you know, tell me what to do because, you know, I, I want to do the thing which will please and satisfy the king most. Um, in terms of the practical application of this about, you know, being wise in the way that you might share something with a non-Christian friend, like I think Esther shows that in spades in the second half of the story. I think she is incredibly shrewd in her godliness in the second half of the story. You know, she knows that if, if you want to win someone over, you've got to actually communicate with them. You know, there's no point talking past them. You've got to speak their language. And she does that over and over again with her husband. She knows how he ticks. And so she communicates accordingly. Um, so, like, don't, don't hear what I've been trying to say as, um, you mustn't exercise this kind of chameleon existence. You must always be open and upfront. And that means that you need to say everything that you could possibly say on every occasion. Of course, it doesn't mean that. Um, the book shows that when you're living in a pagan empire, you need incredible wisdom, and shrewdness becomes a great and godly Christian virtue. You'd be pleased that, to know that somebody agreed with you that well, Esther was living in sin, and they, they don't question her, uh, whether you're being hard on her, um, but they ask. It's quite clear that Esther was living in sin whilst in the harem, but at no point is it mentioned that she seeks forgiveness for these sins. Was Esther's salvation and forgiveness implied by her actions? Okay, so um, I think, yeah, implied. And again, it's because part of the way in which narrative works, you know, stories work um, by writing all sorts of things between the lines. Um, Stories work not so much in a form where it kind of just tells you the propositional truth, bang, just like that. The way that stories reveal truth is much more like a kind of depth charge. You know, you get the story deep inside you, and as it falls down, you know, it's, it's with time that it kind of goes boom and it explodes. And I think that's why, you know, we're not kind of told, um, you know, Esther had this conversion experience or Esther had this experience where she came to assurance and she was really clear about it her faith. I think it works in a subtle way. It works in a long-term way. It works in the kind of way in which Esther's a story that could be getting onto your skin for decades and still be kind of yielding things um, as the years go on rather than a sort of simple, you know, I read the story and I know what it's about, you know, done and dusted. That's it's over with. So she wasn't converted in a tent meeting? (laughs) (laughs) Take that as a no. Question about um, about Mordecai um, as opposed to Esther. In regards to hiding identity, Mordecai instructs Esther to keep quiet. Do you think that Mordecai, was he motivated by seeking to protect Esther or was it more by seeking you know, his own favor, seeking his own advancement? I don't know. Um, 
And again, I think that's one of the ways in which this story is designed to be effective. For, for whoever's writing that question to be thinking about, you know, what was the motivation there? I think that's a really good thing to do. I think that's sort of showing that the story's actually starting to get under your skin. It hasn't told us the answer to that. And so, you know, under God, we're kind of thinking, you know, was it this? Was it that? And as we're asking those questions, the story's just getting inside us. And when it gets inside us, there it does its work. A few questions now about sovereignty, but not in relation to sin, but wider issues. Um, so why does King Xerxes show favor to Esther? And how does God's sovereignty tie in with free will? Um, why does he show, like from, from a human point of view, um, we're not quite sure. Like, from a human point of view, was it because Esther was incredibly beautiful to look at? Um, you know, was it because he had had a very bad experience just beforehand, and in comparison, this seemed wonderful? You know, we, we don't know from his point of view why Xerxes, Ahasuerus, same person, why, from his point of view, he showed that kind of favor to Esther. But we know that from the Lord's point of view... You know, God's sovereignty is such that, you know, whether it comes down to the matter of what Esther looks like or what kind of experiences Ahasuerus had had beforehand or just how he felt on the day when he met her, you know, whether he was feeling really kind of upbeat or whether he was feeling really down, God's sovereignty is so comprehensive that those things are, are woven into the plan. This is compatibilism. You know, God is sovereign. Esther, Mordecai, Ahasuerus they are completely responsible in what's going on. Did I... What was the, what was the second Well, uh, how does God's sovereignty tie in with free will? But I think you've sort of touched on that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is there anything that you've, you've talked about previously, mining the past? Is there anything that you would recommend resource-wise? Yeah, like, I think... It's... It is such a big question for people, you know, when they get thinking about God's sovereignty. And I guess people often kind of get derailed by it quite quickly and they sort of think, oh, you know, this is this is kind of too much for me. You know, I never really get on top of this. And therefore, they scratch their heads for a while and then they just kind of leave it until the next time when the issue kind of comes up and they then they address it again. Like, I think it would be really worth your while um, going and getting some books that will help you think through just how has the church confessed this mystery? You know, we read our Bibles, and again and again, without any embarrassment, the Bible writers put God's sovereignty and human responsibility side by side. How has the church verbalized that? How has it confessed it? I don't know. Is there anything in the bookstore that would be kind of helpful in all those sort of sovereignty things? Ben got the books this time. Ben got, is so. anything good, Ben? I know. Okay, so there's that little book by Jim Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which is really good with that question, especially when it comes to that sort of one of, well, you know, if God's in control with everything to do with salvation, you know, why should we bother trying to tell anyone if... If they're chosen, won't they come? Packer gives a, a great response to that. I guess like some of the stuff written by R.C. Sproul. Um, There's a, a yeah. chapter in Don, Don Carson has a book. I think it's How Long, O Lord. It's mm. primarily to do with suffering, but there's a, a chapter in that that deals with compatibilism. Yeah. So that might be something worth checking out. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, like, especially for people who, you know, for some of you who maybe have been to Bible college or theological college, Paul Helms' book in the Providence of God is um, majestic, but it's a hard read. It's a complicated book, but um, I guess even that kind of has the possibility to humble us in this whole thing. Um, you know, like, th- think of a, a six-year-old asking an astrophysicist, um, you know, who studies the complexities of the universe to kind of explain something to them simply, and the astrophysicist goes, well, you know, if, if you want to understand what has been revealed in creation in the realm of astrophysics, there's a lot that you're going to have to learn if I'm even going to be able to explain this to you. And it's not that different in the realm of what God's revealed in special revelation. You know, just because you can't learn the answer to something in one or two sentences doesn't mean that it's not a legitimate answer. And Paul Helm in that book shows us that the Christian church down through the ages has articulated really sophisticated responses to how God is sovereign and how we're responsible. So a question about sovereignty, but not applying it to a particular issue. Is God sovereign over the choosing of our husband and wife and bringing those circumstances about? Do you believe in the one? <laughs> so is God sovereign over it? You know, like mercifully, wonderfully, he is sovereign over it. Um, and like this, this is a funny question, and it's also a really hard question. Like, it's really frustrating that there are not more blokes at this weekend away. Um, like, it, 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 is, it is a tragic indictment upon us that, um, you know, there are so many great godly young women here, and just not as many godly young men as we would like to be here. Um, and that, that grieves me. And kind of, in one sense, I even feel some responsibility for this in terms of, you know, just what's going on in the Church of Northern Ireland that, you know, we're not better at raising up the kind of blokes um, who ought to be battering down some of your doors to come and court you. Um, you know, like, I... I feel, you know, how have we failed in that? Um, it's not right. It's not good. Um, but mercifully, the Lord is sovereign over all of this. And, like, especially if, if you are here this weekend and if you are pained by your singleness, you need to cling to the fact that the Lord is sovereign over all of this. And... If you are faithful to the Lord in the way that you deal with your singleness, he, he may or he may not reward you with the husband that you want, but he will reward you in some way, and he will reward you with vastly more wisdom and love than you can even comprehend. God's sovereign over the whole thing, and we're responsible. Um, we're responsible, and that means that no little piece of paper is going to fall down from heaven telling you that this is going to be the, the wife or the husband of your dreams. That's not the way that God guides. 
God guides and he shows you the one very, very clearly, often as you look backwards. You know, you can read his providence that way, but it's much harder to read it that way in advance. We're wise and therefore, like we've talked about shrewdness together. We've talked about being wise. We've talked about it particularly in the context of doing evangelism. Um, Like we also need to be wise and prudent and shrewd in this whole matter of relationships as well. And like I guess there are many more women here than men. Um, Esther gives a cracker example to you of how to be really wise and shrewd in the way that you communicate to someone. She is masterful in it. And I would exhort the woman here to be really masterful, really godly, really shrewd in the way that you um, conduct yourselves to blokes who often are, well, we're often just far more slow to realize things. We don't think as quickly as we ought to. Sometimes we need to be prompted. And Esther recognized that really clearly and um, learned from her example. I think it's Doug Wilson says, ask her name. Ask her name. <laughs> so some questions here about um, so the Lord's Day, Sabbath, that sort of thing. Um, so, so in, in relation to, to Purim in particular, why was one day not enough? Um, because the magnitude of the reversal that took place meant that they wanted to celebrate for two. Yeah, sounds good. Um, Purim is a feast celebrated by the Jews, which was not established directly by God like the other uh, feasts in in Leviticus. Uh, Were Mordecai and Esther right in establishing this feast? If so, did it rank with the other feasts? Of Leviticus. I suspect a Presbyterian asked this question because only a Presbyterian would care about these things. Yeah, like Presbyterians are really interested in these things. So um, it, it ranks in a different order to the feasts that are revealed in, in God's ceremonial law. Um, although it ranks below them, I think clearly it is a feast which comes to find its expression through the church understanding the providence of God. And the church has, under the old covenant, the liberty to call special festivals like that um, because it's appropriate that things be remembered and celebrated. I think we've good reason to think that our Lord would have kept um, the festival of Purim. And together, Purim and all the other feasts, especially the ones revealed in the law itself, they are types and shadows that point forward to the great feast and celebration of the new covenant, which is the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. And I think Purim can give us some lessons for how we keep it. Under the new covenant, I think the church has liberty in its worship. And, um, you know, I think... Like, I don't know about you, but I certainly am going to be celebrating Christmas later this month. Um, and I think there's good reason for us to, to celebrate things like that. Um, it's not something which is directly commanded in the same way that Purim wasn't correctly co- commanded, but there are good gospel reasons to, to keep it and celebrate it. Yeah, yeah, 
So they, they had the liberty to um, establish the festival that they've written about in, in the chapters here. Um, I don't think there's any sense that um, there is any notion of condemnation in, in this part of God's word about the feast which was celebrated. So the, there are very, very precise rules and regulations for worship under the Old Covenant, um, but just because there are very precise regulations doesn't also mean that there's a degree of freedom that the church is going to celebrate Purim under the Old Covenant, that the church is going to celebrate Hanukkah under the Old Covenant. Well, yes. I was just going to say, in John's Gospel, Jesus celebrates Hanukkah, doesn't he? Yeah. So obviously, our Lord felt he had the liberty to celebrate something that wasn't in uh, the Mosaic Code. So th- those would be examples of um, taking biblical principles about worship and under the liberty that was given, applying those principles um, into additional elements of worship outside what was laid down in the Mosaic Code. So that, sorry, that's kind of, a, it's kind of an in-house Presby discussion. Apologies for some people who may not be interested in that. Picking up on how Purim can help us think about what it means to celebrate on the Lord's Day. Um, how does the Lord's Supper factor into feasting? Um, is it just a foretaste of heavenly feasting? Also, should Christians be meeting more uh, around meal tables outside of worship? Um, so, like, I guess evangelicals, Christians who take the Bible seriously, they do have different understandings of the Lord's Supper and what takes place at the Lord's Supper. Um, For many people within the Reformed tradition, they have a very, very high view of what the Supper is. Um, They don't think that the Supper is simply an opportunity that God gives to look back and remember or to think forward and remember. They think that the Lord's Supper is a way in which God really preaches the gospel to us in a visible way, in a way in which you can smell and taste and touch. They think that it signifies the gospel and that it puts a seal on the gospel, that it is a great foretaste of what's to come. So although we might only drink a tiny little sip of wine or eat a crumb of bread, actually when we come to the Lord's table with faith, it's a whole banquet that is spread before us. So I think the Lord's Supper... It is a great feast for the church. It's a great way to celebrate. There's another bit in the question, though, about you know, what we do kind of outside worship. And I think, yes, yeah, certainly the Lord's Day ought to be a day when we are throwing open our homes to welcome other people in. I, thought that's, I think that's something we ought to do far, far more. And I've been talking to a few people about this over the weekend. I think it's something that English Christians often do far, far better than Christians in Northern Ireland. You know, they're, they're much better at welcoming people into their homes, you know, about drawing them in so that the day can be an opportunity for not just a cessation of things, but also just a really positive day of joy and gladness and celebration for the whole community. And I would just exhort you in whatever way you can to do more of that, you know, to to try to make it happen. You know, like here, like in some ways, we're still in quite a deeply rooted society where often Sundays are just a day for 
um, biological families to meet together, but I'd say do what you can to draw other people into that as well and make it just the best day of the week, just a day of incredible gladness and, and generosity and inclusion. Some commentators have argued that the Book of Esther is not a, lit- a literal historical narrative. What's your view on this claim? Um, I think it is a literal historical narrative. <laughs> we're, ru- we're running out of time, so if you want to come, you know, push back on that, you can ask more. Yeah, yeah like, I guess even for things like that... Um, if, if you've got questions, like I think we've got a question about you know, who wrote Esther yeah, and so on. The, who wrote the book um, of Esther? You know, for things like that, we've got some really good new study Bibles that are available now. And like, if, if you don't have something like the ESV study Bible or the new NIV study Bible, they're so worthwhile getting because they'll have things at the introduction to each book of the Bible that will give you a good, clear explanation of, well, who do evangelical Bible scholars think wrote a book like this? And chances are both those study Bibles will also have articles either at the beginning or right at the end of the Bible that will address some of those um, you know, questions to do with historicity. Um, how does this fit into the period? You know, how, do you, how do you read a book like that? And um, I think that's probably the easiest way to go to get a short, reasonably concise question to some of those issues of authorship and historicity. In one, in one word, do you have a view on who wrote it? No. no. Um, why doesn't the writer mention the Lord when he's clearly not in control? Sorry, I wasn't here for talk one, so listen to talk one. Um, when it's up online, you can get it's the answer. part of the way that stories work. We're not very good at stories as evangelicals. We're often much, much better with epistles, but God in his wisdom has given us loads of the Bible and story formats, so we need to get better at reading them. Uh, like Mordecai, how do we call others out in a loving way? Brackets, practical advice. Um, just cultivate meaningful friendships with people. You know, like often been involved in something like a small group Bible study, it's a good framework. It gives a trellis to allow meaningful friendships to grow up and develop. Um, practical advice, just learn how to ask people better questions. You know, so rather than kind of, you know, piling in like a bull in a china shop to call someone out, um, just try to learn how to, to get to know people. And one of the best ways to get to know people is to learn how to ask people questions. Um, that is an easy way to become a far better conversationalist, and it is a really important way to build the sort of friendships with people where rather than, you know, I'm here to rebuke you, you can say, you know, just help me understand, you know, to ask a question. That's just, it's a wise and a shrewd way to do that. How can we explain to Muslims that we don't need a holy war today? Um, We do need a holy war today, um, but that holy war is not fought today with the weapons of this world. The holy war that we fight about, we've been singing about it in one of our songs, we fight with the sword that wounds to make whole. Um, we are to be 
involved in a crusade, but the weapons that we fight with are not the carnal, physical weapons of this world. We fight with spiritual weapons. We wear the armor of God. You used the word crusade. I'm now waiting for these talks to go online and to get angry bloggers. Sorry. <laughs> no one told me this was recorded. <laughs> yeah, we can edit it out. Yeah. Uh, See the, the advocacy website taken down. <laughs> Almost there. Um, should you do devotional study of different Bible books differently? In other, like, for example, should you read Esther devotionally different to how you would read Romans devotionally? Um, like, yes and no. Um, you know, like all these parts of the Bible, you know, whether it's Romans or Esther, um, reading them as part of our devotions is just a thoroughly good activity. And simply just reading them is a very, very valuable thing. Um, But we ought to be well aware that Romans and Esther are very different types of literature. And so, um, of course, we're going to interact with them in different ways. And, you know, we're going to interact with them. You know, both of them are long-term projects to learn to read. Um, like, it's going to take many, many years to become good readers of both those books. Um. Uh, another question here that's sort of big picture stuff, but I think it will links into how we can read the Bible better. Uh, it's a great question. Have we not heard the story of Esther before several times throughout the Bible, only with different names, i.e. the themes of pride before fall, recognition of their fallen state, the seeking of forgiveness, and God's ultimate mercy? Yeah, like, very, very much so. And, you know, like... Um, what's the best way to become a better Bible reader? Well, it's to just keep reading the Bible because the same story is woven into it everywhere. And as you see it more clearly in one place, then when you come to another place, you've got all that experience and you just see the richness of the tapestry far more clearly. These, These gospel themes, they are everywhere in the scriptures. You know, God has put them there and... The more we see them, the more we'll see others. There's a question here that just says, 75 pounds, exclamation mark, question mark, 75 pounds, exclamation mark. Um, I feel a little bit like Boris Johnson making up policy on the hoop, but I think a couple of things. I think that we would say, and and we're not, obviously don't want everyone to price anybody out, but we do think 75 pounds is pretty reasonable for two nights accommodation, you know, Friday night food, three meals on the Saturday, two meals on the Sunday, uh, five really good Bible talks that Marty's put a lot of work, or any speaker's put a lot of work into. Um, but that being said, if money ever was an issue, we would never want it to be. And, you know, there are ways online that you can contact us um, confidentially, and we'd be happy to, you know, to do what we could do. Then one last question. Should the modern female take note from the book of Esther and carry out six month I have no issue. <laughs> Car- carry out six month dips in oils and spices like like a modern day sheep dip because because the showers here aren't great. Maybe I should have asked you that in, in relation yeah. to the question about dating and that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah. 
uh, the fifth, man, the fifth Amendment. <laughs> okay. well, I think that's the end of the questions, unless uh, we're pretty tight for time now. What, what about the, uh, uh, oh, maybe they're, they've been relegated, redacted. Sort of, we sort of dealt with those. I mean, well, we didn't. I mean, Luther didn't have a hammer, are you sure? <laughs> kind of like 99%. Okay. Yeah. Um, it would have gone up with paste, not nails. Um, and university professors didn't do things like putting up notes on boards. They had junior members of staff to do that for them. Uh, I mean, I didn't ask this because I thought, it should, be, um, should we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus every day, not just on Sunday? Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, of course, but um, God knows what we're like. And he knows how easily we forget things, even if we're trying to celebrate them all the time. And so in his wisdom, he's given us a rhythm to really help us celebrate those things. Um, in very short compass, your man is John Owen. How would John Owen outline a Sunday well spent? Um, like for Owen, a Sunday well spent is going to to very much involve meeting together with the people of God to hear the word of God. Um, like, I don't really have time. Yeah. yeah, like, um, yeah, like, I'd gladly talk about that to someone else. Like, the, the Puritans in the 17th century saw Sabbath-keeping as an essential part of their piety. Well, that brings us to the end of our q and I'm sure Marty's glad. Without and breathe a sigh of relief. And now it's just to say some thank you. So first of all,